Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you're watching online this morning, glad you could be with us that way. And uh, I invite you to join us here live soon. And those who are down at F3, uh, welcome as well. Uh, we, um, we had a beautiful evening last night of our Fellowship Saturday service. It was uh, great. We're going to start moving that now to 7 in the evening because... Uh, I guess we heard it's going to be 90 degrees next weekend. So um, anyway, that starts at 7 in the evening, beautiful evening. It was a beautiful morning in uh, July, a July morning, 1978, when 48-year-old Bill Quinlan took off uh, on a 4,000-mile 4, journey in his uh, sailing vessel with his 18-year-old nephew, David Lucas. They set off from San Diego heading to the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific, a 4,000-mile trip that tragically, about a fourth of the way there, about 1,000 miles into the trip, um, a hurricane came and um, devastation rained down upon them. The vessel was um, um, destroyed. They were able to get into a life raft. Um, and for the next five days, that's how they survived. A few tins of water and food until there was only one tin of water left and one little tin of food left and that's when Bill Quinlan said to his 18-year-old nephew, you have all of life ahead of you. And he scribbled something on one of the tins and before the young nephew could, could reach for him, Bill Quinlan slipped off into the water and, and swam away, never to be seen again. Uh, the next day, and that's probably the tragedy of the story, uh, before David Lucas even used up the last tin of water and tin of food, the very next day uh, uh, he was rescued by a, a fishing vessel off the Mexican coast and went back to, eventually to California, to his Aunt Vicky's and gave her the, the, the wedding ring that his uncle had given him and then that tin where he had scratched on that tin a message, I love you and I'm sorry. You see, Bill Quinlan had given his life for his nephew. He sacrificed his life so that his nephew could live. It is similar to what we understand of what the gospel is, what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Reminded in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In self-sacrificing love, Jesus went to the cross. Actually, self-sacrificing love, he stepped down from the throne of glory. Self-sacrificing love, he, he emptied himself, as it says in Philippians he emptied himself and took on the form of, of a slave. Becoming fully man, yet fully God, he came and lived in obscurity and subjected himself to all the torments and the tribulations and the trials of humanity, and then he went ultimately to the cross to die as a common criminal, crucifixion under the hands of the Romans. Why? So that we might live, that we might have eternal life. 
He took upon himself our sin and he died in our place. Self-sacrificing love. No greater love has this than a man give his life for his friends, said Jesus, and he gave it for his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And by the way, if you're listening to this online or if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus, this is the best news you'll, you'll hear in your entire lifetime. There's a home in heaven waiting for you if you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. Eternal life is given as a free gift because of the self-sacrificing love of Jesus for you. He died in your place and he rose again and he offers the free gift of eternal life. And all you have to do is put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. <laughs> Can you find better news than that? Christ gave his life that we might live. But just a few hours before Jesus did that, in that upper room scene where he was meeting with his disciples, Jesus said this to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Well, wasn't that commanded in the Old Testament? Love God and love others as you love yourself? Uh, that's, that's the difference. The Old Testament law said we were to love God and we were to love others as we love ourselves. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love others as I have loved you. The newness of the commandment is in the, the, the character, the nature of the love now. Not as you love yourself, but I'm raising the bar, says Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. That self-sacrificing love. Now, we're continuing our study in the book of Romans, but we're going to begin for today and for the next few weeks a little more concentrated study, starting in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. So take your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and focusing on this theme of loving one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 begins with a little phrase that says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let your love be sincere. Let your love be genuine. And then he unpacks, I think, what that looks like in the next few verses. We think of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 typically as the love chapter. I mean, that's a passage I've many times used at a, at a wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Um, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is... Uh, a wonderful, marvelous chapter on love, but Romans 12 rivals it in terms of what it teaches us about love. And so we'll spend uh, a few weeks there in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Now, I told you to turn to Romans chapter 12, but I, I guess I lied because I really want to look at two passages real quick before we get there. So put your something there in uh, Romans 12, and we're going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Got it up on the overhead if, if your fingers are too arthritic to move this morning. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It's a familiar passage. Realize this, Paul wrote to Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Verse 3 says, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, and then he ends up with saying, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Did you see what was highlighted in that very first list, first phrase of the list? Realize this, that difficult times come and men will be lovers of self. Narcissism. The world revolves around me. The world revolves around me. Paul is telling Timothy, in the last days, there's going to be very terrible, troubling times. Now, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago to, to Timothy. He's warning Timothy about the, 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 the love for God growing cold and the love for pleasure, the love for money, the love for things, the, the love for self will be all-encompassing. Verse 13, he actually says, um, evil men and impostors are going to proceed from bad to worse even. 2,000 years later, it makes you wonder, as you look around at the world around us, are we, are we living in the last days? In the last days, people are going to love themselves like they've never loved themselves before. And it's perilous, troublesome times. Now, with that concern about the last days that's going to be marked by a love for self rather than a love for God and a love for others, where the, the great commandment to love God and to love others, the new commandment, like Jesus said, to love people as I have loved you, the concern that in the last days that kind of love, that narcissistic self-love, self-centered love is going to be all-encompassing, it's no wonder that the biblical writers talked a lot about love. Um, Paul and Peter and John certainly did, and James, they all talk about a priority of love, how Christ loved us and how that is to be exemplified in our lives. All the New Testament over and over again talks about that. The other passage I wanted to look at real quickly to introduce this Romans 12, 9 passage is Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Now back up to verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brother, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Paul had just been writing about how when a, when a believer comes under the law and, and the legalism of do this and don't do that in order to earn God's favor, how shackling, how binding it is, but but we are loved by God with an everlasting love. 
He loves us just as we are. We don't have to perform to merit his love and his favor. We are free from that. But Paul warns us in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brother, only don't, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, for the sinful desires. And he says, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in that word. In that statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. And then he goes on in verse 16 and says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's a wonderful promise. And it's written very emphatically. There are two negatives that are used in verse 16. In the English language, two negatives cancel each other out. It's, you can't, you know, it ends up being a positive. In the Greek language, no, it was added for emphasis. And so Paul is saying here in verse 16, I'm telling you, if you walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will in absolutely no way impossible carry out those fleshly desires, those sinful desires. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And he goes on and he gives this description starting in verse 19 of what that looks like. The deeds of the flesh are evident immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 20 says idolatry and sorcery and enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like these which I forewarned you and I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, the flesh, the stench of flesh that is those sinful propensities that can well up in the life of even a believer because he's warning believers he's, that's who he's writing to walk by the spirit and his power and you won't carry out the the stench of the flesh that always has to do with the breaking of relationships the envying the the dissensions the factions the strife the outbursts of anger. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and headlining the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law. So Paul is saying here we have two choices. Believers in Jesus Christ, we have two choices. Every morning we can get up and make two choices. I'm either going to walk by the flesh, my own sinful tendencies, my own potential for my narcissistic ways of being a lover of self. I can live my life today to protect myself, to guard my frail self from any hurt or anything that might damage my esteem of myself. Or I can walk by the Spirit, and I can allow Him to control my life. And when that happens, it's this amazing thing called fruit all of a sudden shows up. The, the fruit on the branches of our life. There's love. <laughs> There's joy. It just kind of pops out like fruit. Peace. Where did that come from? Well, not ourselves. 
but there's something about the, the flow, of the, the sap of, of the life of the Holy Spirit that as we resign ourselves to Him, as we walk by faith and not by sight, and we ask Him, Lord, I can't produce this, but I'm going to step out today in faith. I, I, you need to control my life. Lord, help me to orient my thinking to you. Help me to go through my life as I encounter people today to let your life be lived out through me. And all of a sudden, there's love. Where'd that come from? There's joy. <laughs> and the, the fruit starts hanging out on the branches of our life. Two choices that we can make. Walk by the Spirit or we will carry out the desires of the flesh. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we can generate. What we generate in and of ourselves is the narcissistic mentality of, I'm going to love myself. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to assert myself. Fruit of the Spirit is I'm going to love God. I'm going to go love others. Just like God, just like Jesus did for me. Now with that little introductory background with those two passages, now we go to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without, the old King James says, dissimulation. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere. Now, the, the word for love there, as you oftentimes heard, is that word agape. Agape, we could define it this way, as that unconditional acceptance of someone who may or may not deserve it, but it desires and seeks the ultimate good of that person, even the, to the point of incurring personal sacrifice, personal cost. It's the it's the volitional kind of commanded sort of love. Yes, it's full of emotion. It's full of emotion. But primarily, agape is that idea, and we've heard that word many, many times. Agape is that love that can be commanded. You can't command emotions, but you can command sacrificial service to one another. It seeks the good in someone else, even if it costs me something. I want what's best for you, and I'll do whatever I can to make sure that happens, even if it costs me something. I care for you. Agape love. Interesting thing about that word agape, there's uh, multiple words for love in the Greek language. This word agape in the literature of the day, as Paul was writing, and, and, and even older classical Greek language, agape apparently was hardly ever used. In fact, one scholar I read, you can count on a couple of hands maybe the number of times that agape is used in um, literature of the day. It, just, it was just not a common word that was used. There were other words for love that were used. And yet when God moved upon the writers of the New Testament to talk about his love for the world, God so loved the world, our love for him and our love for one another, he took this word agape, and put, put his divine spin to it. 
It's the love of unconditional, sacrificial service, the highest supreme kind of love. It's God's love for us. Self-sacrificing service to God. Paul is saying here in chapter 12, verse 9, that that kind of love needs to be without hypocrisy. It needs to be displayed with sincerity. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be the real deal. I find it interesting in that 1 Corinthians 13 passage, by the way, where it says, um, you know, um, if, I, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and have not love, I'm nothing. And it goes on and says, if I give my body to be burned and yet have not love, it profits me nothing. It's kind of a fascinating thing, isn't it? I mean, you show me someone who's going to give all their possessions to feed the poor. I mean, sell their home, sell their fancy cars, uh, liquidate their 401ks, and go down to some inner city or, or somewhere in Africa and set up a refugee center of some sort and give all your possessions to feed the poor. And I'll say, man, there's a person who knows how to love self-sacrificingly. And Paul says, no, not necessarily. I could give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I still might not have love. You show someone, someone who gives their life for their friends, the soldier that falls on the grenade and dies so others can live, the, the person that that self-sacrificingly does something, gives their life to be burned. Oh, now there's a model of love. And Paul says, mm, not necessarily. I can give my body to be burned, but I still might not have love. Self-sacrificing love, this biblical kind of love, goes deeper than activity, it goes deeper than service. It manifests itself that way in self-sacrificing service for the good of someone else. But it has far more to do with the, the attitude of the heart and the source of where it comes, the fruit of the Spirit. Now Paul is saying here in chapter 12, verse 9, that love must be without hypocrisy or to state it positively, it must be sincere, it must be genuine, and that's the guiding thought in this whole passage and the verses to come. Let your love be real, and then Paul begins to unpack it, as we'll see in the few weeks to come, what that real, unhypocritical love will look like. Now, that's the other word that has to be, that's kind of a fun word to look at, is the word hypocrites, hypocrite, hypocrites. It was a word that was used in that Greek life of, the, uh, of that world uh, to refer to a, a play actor on the stage at the theater, the one who spoke behind a mask in the stage in the Greek theaters, the Greek tragedies or the, uh, the comedies of Greek, language, the Greek theater. 
you, you see the, 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 the masks, you know, you see in film uh, today the sad mask or the happy mask, you know, and they would come out on the stage and they, if they were playing the villain, they would put that mask on that looked kind of villainous, you know. Now, the guy putting it on, he's probably a really nice guy. He'd love to have him for a neighbor. But he was play acting. He was speaking from behind a mask. What you saw, the villain really wasn't who he was. Or you could have the person with the mask with the smiley face and he's the, he's the hero, the heroine of the, the, the passage she is. And, 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 and yet you remove the mask and really, ugh, you wouldn't want to really be around that person. They're nasty. They were play acting. They were hupocrites. They were a play actor on the stage. What you saw was not what was behind the mask. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't the real thing. And as language is typically does, that word hypocrites kind of evolved over time and it ended up having these evil kind of connotations to it. In fact, I don't know if there's something, anything more damaging for a Christian to be told that, that they are, boy, are you a hypocrite. You're not the real deal. You're a fake. Now, again, in verse 9 here of chapter 12, Paul is warning Christians, when it comes to agape, love, may it be real, may it be genuine. Don't be a hypocrite when it comes to love. Now, let's dissect that hypocritical love idea a little bit further. What, what happens when we are a play actor on the stage of life and we, we, we fake love? We give all our possessions to the poor, but it's, it's fake agape. What's the nature of hypocritical love? Well, again, let, let's just, just by way of reminder, let's remember that true agape love, unhypocritical love, is a fruit of the Spirit. It is sourced in God. It, it, it's not sourced in ourselves. It comes from Him. Hypocritical love is clearly not a fruit of the Spirit. Oh, it may kind of look like it on the outside. And we can kind of fool people at times that, my, aren't they loving but it's sourced in the flesh and not self. And that flesh, again, as we studied in Romans chapter 7, is that inclination to elevate myself, to protect myself, to, to care for myself rather than care for others. It's a, it's a self-concern rather than an other's concern. It's, a, it's the essence of sin, and it really is an essence of pride. It's putting myself at the center of things. In Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent came to deceive Eve, what did he, how did he deceive her with? What did he say? If you eat of that fruit, you will not die. You will surely not die. But God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Oh, and Eve, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's desirable to make one wise. And she was deceived into thinking that you know, I can better myself. 
if I eat, God is holding out on me. I can better myself. If, and she took the fruit and ate and gave to her husband, who knowingly knew that that was a lie, and he partook too. The essence of that sin is this hubris, is this pride, is this, you know, I think I can better myself. I'm going to protect myself. And the eyes turn from God or others to self. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that we're created in the image of God. And part of being created in the image of God is, to, is, is that we're created for fellowship, first and foremost, with our Creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Trinity, the three persons of one God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and he did. With a capacity for relationship, to relate with him, to relate with others. It's part of being created in the image of God. We have a, because of, of sin, we have that hole in our soul that can only be filled by God through a relationship with him because that's what we've been created for, created in the image of God. But fallen mankind and the flesh that so easily entangles us, our sin, attempts to shove God away, to live a, autonomous from God and to fill that hole with all sorts of different things. Money, pursuits of all kinds, sex, pleasures, power, influence, even good things. Even good things like church work and selling all your possessions to give to the poor. Or even giving your body to be burned for the sake of others. And this is where hypocritical love comes in. Because if we attempt to live independent of God, seize control of life for ourselves to put the spotlight on me, to make things better for me, I can do all sorts of manner of good or evil to fill the hole in my soul, but my primary concern is the blessed trinity of me, myself, and I and not God. And I seek the benefit of myself, the good of myself, rather than the good of others. Hypocritical love is the appearance of caring for others when in reality all I'm doing is caring for myself. Let's, let's, let's just get real, real here this morning. I can be up here like I'm doing right now, preach a, a sermon week after week after week, year after year after year, and do it simply because I want the accolades of people. I want to hear the great sermon to change my life, Mark. The pats on the back. Uh, just the, the feel good that, that I get from being up here and you peons are down there. It's hypocritical love then. It's amazing. I can use my attempt to use my spiritual gifts in a carnal way, in a, in a self-seeking way, and I can fool most of you most of the time, though people who are real close can sniff it out, 
but you'll walk out of here none the wiser. But God knows. It's rotten to the core. Oh, and by the way, you're all capable of the same thing. You can serve in the nursery. You can help with youth. You can work in a wonderful ministry like Abba Care. You can go down and give your time at the rescue mission to some of the guys there. You can be a part of a jail ministry. You can give all your possessions to feed the poor and do it with hypocritical love. We could tell someone who just shares a, a prayer request, I'll, thanks, I'll, I'll pray for you. And five feet after we walk away, it's out of our mind. We don't remember. We can have our morning devotions. We can spend an hour, shoot, we can spend two hours in prayer and Bible study in the morning. And it can profit us nothing. Because it's done to fill the hole, the sense of, I, I, need, to, I need to get God's attention. You see, it's, it's all about me. It's all, it's all about, I want my day to go well. That's what Larry Crabb had called the, the, the principle of linearity. If I, if I do A and I do B, then I'm going to get C from God. Why would this happen to me, God? Because I did A and I did B and I did C. I mean, I, I share my faith, I give money to the church, I serve, I do all this thing. Why did this happen to me? I'll tell you why it happened to me. Because God wants to shake my life up to realize it's selfishness to the core. I did A, B, and C so I could get this. That's hypocritical love. And Paul is saying in chapter 12, verse 9, guard it, watch out. Let your love be without hypocrisy. You can see, by the way, where in those verses earlier, in verse 2, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Present yourself a living sacrifice. Crawl up on the altar, take my life and let it be. Present yourself as a living, holy sacrifice. It's our spiritual service of worship. Guard your, your mind. What are you thinking to be true? If I do A, B, and C, I'll get this. No, be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can really prove what the will of God is. And it's unhypocritical love. So one of the best examples of a transformed mind is a life that is lived out in pure, genuine, the real deal, spirit-empowered love. It's been a blessing for me to be part of this church for 31 years because I have not only witnessed, but I have been on the receiving end time and time and time again of, I think, true, genuine, unhypocritical love. I have seen it lived out so many times. And it's, it's not forced, it's not fake, just, just the real stuff 
as people just walk by the Spirit. I, one of, I was thinking about this this week. One of the earliest uh, examples, or one that stood out to me so strongly, was when I was a high school student. It was 1972, and uh, me and a couple of buddies from our youth group at our little church in rural Nebraska, we, we were on fire for Jesus. I mean, we, it was kind of the height of the Jesus movement, and we were juniors in high school, and we were witnessing to our friends and all this stuff. And, and, um, and it, life was exciting with Jesus. We were caught up in it. And Camps Crusade for Christ, um, that summer, I've mentioned this maybe once or twice before, but Camps Crusade for, for, for Christ, um, in fact, Dan, you went to it, was uh, called, X, they did a thing in Dallas, Texas called Explo 72. It was an evangelism training event targeting high school and college students. 80 to 100,000 high school, college students descended on Dallas, Texas in June of 1972 for evangelism training, for nightly meetings in the Cotton Bowl. Billy Graham was there. Every, at that time, it was early Christian, uh, the Christian music scene, the contemporary music. It was very early days. Every major uh, artist out there came to the Cotton Bowl. I mean, it was a, it was a crazy time. And we wanted to go to that. And it was difficult because, you know, farm boys, June, we, there's plenty to do on the farm. But we were praying, Lord, we really want to do this thing. And every, every box got checked. I mean, everything was lined up for the three of us to head down there except for one thing. We didn't have a car. <laughs> I had an old pickup. It wouldn't make it out of the state of Nebraska. They didn't have any vehicles, and we were stuck. We didn't know, and, and I certainly wasn't going to ask my folks. I mean, they loved me, and they loved me enough to tell me, you're nuts, Mark. 17-year-old boys driving down to Dallas, Texas? Yeah, and you've been out of the state of Nebraska. And we had no idea how we were going to get down there, but we were praying, and we were praying. God, if you want us to go, then provide somehow in some way. And it was the week before we were going to go, there was a gal in our church, Susan Gray, who had, just a few months before, had purchased a brand new 1972 Plymouth Duster. And I'll never forget the Sunday she came up to me and she said, hey, I think God wants me to give you my car for you boys to go down to Dallas. I tell you what, knock me over with a feather. This was it, was, it was such a pure act of grace and kindness and love. No strings attached. She was sacrificing her brand new 1972 Plymouth Duster into the hands of three 17-year-old, recently 17-year-old boys who could sure drive a tractor on the farm but drive a brand new car down to Dallas? Are you kidding me? But she gave it no strings attached with her love. And we went down to that event, and it was life-changing. There was something pure and genuine. I'll, for, I'll never forget that. It was the real deal, real love. Of course, there was only one person who purely and completely and always loved that way. And it was our Lord Jesus. John chapter 13 says this, having loved his own, Jesus having loved his own, he loved, when he's talking about his disciples, he loved them to the end. 
Interesting thing about John's gospel. The first uh, 12 chapters um, use the word life and light a lot. Uh, for instance, in chapters 1 through 12, the word life is used 50 times, and the word light is used 32 times. But an interesting thing in the final chapters, 13 and, and toward, to the end, 21, those words are only used six times, and light isn't used at all. Something changes in chapter 13. Now, what changes is chapter 13 begins the upper room, time where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Everything kind of slows up in John's gospel, and the focus is on those final hours of Christ's life. And light and life aren't found, rarely. In contrast, that word agape only occurs six times in chapters 1 through 12, but in chapters 13 through 17, it occurs 31 times. Love takes on a whole different meaning starting in chapter 13 of John. And it begins with that phrase, Jesus having loved his own, he loved him to the end, completely to the uttermost. His love had no end. It was complete, it was perfect, it was eternal. To the full extent that he could love, he loved his own. He loved them completely. It didn't end because they, they were half-hearted or half-baked disciples. It didn't end because they denied him. It didn't end because they always seemed to have an element of disbelief in everything they did. He loved them completely and fully. And I'm reminded of those words of Charles Wesley's great song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Would Die For Me. <laughs> Amazing love! How can it be that Thou, My God, Would Die For Me? Look who Jesus loved to the end. That 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, let me just quote something as he could put it, only as Spurgeon could put it, about that love. He said, Our Savior's faithfulness towards the chosen band whom he had elected into his fellowship was most remarkable. He had selected persons who must have been but poor companions for one of so gigantic a mind and so great a heart. They groveled in the dust when he mounted to the stars. He was thinking of baptism, wherewith he was to be baptized, and they were disputing which among them was the greatest. He was ready to deny himself that he might do the Father's will, and meanwhile, they were asking one to sit at his right and one to sit at his left. Earthworms are miserable company for angels, moles, but unhappy company for eagles. Yet love made our great master endure the society of his ignorant and carnal followers. They were but babes in Christ and possessed but with slight illumination. And yet for all that, he who knew all things and is the wisdom of God condescended to call them his mother, his sister, his brothers. There is no teacher here who could have had such patience with such great heavy intellects, but our Lord and Master's love remained evermore a flood tide, notwithstanding their incorrigible stupidity. 
His love was stronger than their unbelief and ignorance. If our sins be mountainous, his love shall be like, like Noah's flood, and the tops of the mountains shall be covered, and not so much as a sin shall be found against us. Amazing love, how can it be that not one sin will be counted against thee? He died for us. You talk about love. He went to the cross so that we can have a relationship with him for all of eternity. Not a person in this world who's worthy of that, but he did it. His agape love. He wrote the book on it. And we would say, well, I wouldn't expect anything less than the, from the God-man. I mean, after all, he was God. He surely wouldn't expect that from me. I'm but an earthworm, a mole, a spiritual pygmy. I close with this verse by way of reminder from Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I'll live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer, that old Mark Carey, as we talked about in Romans 6, 7, and 8, I no longer live. Something happened to me the moment I trusted Christ. I was raised up to newness of life in him. I have a new identity wrapped up in him. He now takes up residence in my life. The life I now live, I live by faith in him. Oh, I could never in my own strength and effort love with unhypocritical love. I am incapable of that. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, as I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, we have the very one who wrote the book on agape love dwelling within us in the presence of his Holy Spirit. And as we walk by his power and his strength, that fruit of love, that pure, unadulterated, genuine, the real deal, sincere, unhypocritical love will manifest itself in our lives. And we won't be characterized by a play actor on the stage of life speaking from behind a mask. We can drop the mask and we can let the life of Christ be flowing through us and how we treat one another, how we live in this world, how we think of people that we disagree with, and we think about the people who've done us dirty and damage in our life, all of a sudden, things change. Because it's not I, but it's Christ who lives within me. And that's what a transformed life looks like. That's what a life of worship before God, on the altar laid out before Him. It's a life of unhypocritical love. And in the weeks to come, we'll let Paul unpack that for us further. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you for just your word and that, Father, it's your Holy Spirit that can make it alive to us, but not just alive and and. And, and moments of awareness or moments of, uh, aha, I get it. But really, really lived out Christianity and shoe leather kind of 
reality. Love that is genuine and real. And that's when we fulfill the, the great commandment, Lord, of loving you and loving others. Fulfill that which was the burden of your heart in those final hours of your life, Jesus, when you said, by this all the world will know that you are my followers. If we have love for one another, like that, that agape, pure, unadulterated love. Father, my prayer is that each one of us will, um, sometime this week, sometime today, will listen to your Holy Spirit within us. And as David said, may there be, Lord, if, it, if there is, search me, try me, to see if there's some wicked way with me, if there's some, some hypocritical love. What I do, was that for my benefit? Was it to protect me? Lord, just reveal to us as we present ourselves to you. I just pray, Lord, that this is not a, a sermon that we now have checked off, we've gone and we leave and nothing changes. Help us to be sensitive, Father, to your leading and your directing in our life. And then draw us close to you and appropriate the power that we have in the presence of the Holy Spirit to, to love in a pure, genuine way. For your glory and honor, I pray in Christ's name.